Extended edition covering topics of Afrofuturism with Harris Smith, Dean of UNM's College of Fine Arts. What is evidence of a hero and what is the essence of empowerment? What message for the youth today is powerful enough to deliver with energy a desire to do better and dream bigger? George Clinton said on Afrofuturism and science fiction, Free your mind, and your ass will follow. He also added, Open up your funkin' mind, and you can fly. Afrofuturism is a recently coined label that actually refers to a movement that has roots way back in history. Harris Smith explains more in an interview I had with him. We're going to move on just a little bit, because I know that you talk about Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, I've recently researched, meaning of what that actually is. So before we go into that, I'm going to play you a little piece. It's from um, UCLA Anderson podcast show. And he's interviewing three uh, ladies. One of them is actually a professor at uh, UCLA. And I'm just going to play this little part and then we can discuss it. Well, the audience is, is worldwide. And, and I, I really want to jump on this point of imagination in the African diaspora, because that to me is what Afrofuturism is, uh, because it does also encompass fantasy, um, alternate history. Sometimes it's technological, sometimes it's futuristic, but it's always Black-centered and it's revolutionary. So it, centering Blackness is, in imagination is very much revolutionary today. And I think it's very important. And for that reason, it has a very wide appeal. I mean, there are Afrofuturism conferences in Germany, you know, uh, African futurism is beginning to uh, take off as a concept among African writers, uh, led by Nnedi Okorafor, who is an award-winning Nigerian-American writer who distinguishes between the way I teach Afrofuturism is the Black speculative arts. And what I mean by that is the literature, music, comics, uh, films of the uh, imagination, like the not real world. So that means fantasy, imaginary places. That can mean in the future, a place we haven't been to yet, or like Julie Dash's film, Daughters of the Dust, the past, but interacting with the technologies of the past and trying to bridge, even in that film, which is set at basically the turn of the century, like trying to bridge between their past, and the future we knew coming uh, beyond the realm of film. Okay, so we're getting a picture here of her thoughts. The three things that I picked out from that or parsed out is the fact that it's both the combination of bridging fantasy with uh, kind of a dualism of reality, also about the fact that it's a journey of ideals and, and ideas and imagination, And then lastly, it's becoming more and more accepted worldwide. And those are the things I believe that she's been talking about when she says that she teaches this in her courses. What I want you to do is review that in your head a little bit and contrast that with what you're doing with it. 
for me, just to, to kind of put things into context, um, when I started doing my research on Afrofuturism, because I wanted this to be part of, I, I read an article and someone pointed out, for example, in Black Panther, um, the fighting techniques were really basically still kind of Western philosophy, right? If you look at everything that they did in Black Panther, it mirrored what came out in the movie 300. So I started to ask myself, well, what, if, if we're really looking at the, the beliefs and the ethics of black futurism and in empowering black people, what does that look like if we really distilled it down into what our beliefs and principles are applying Afrofuturism to stage violence? And so I, want, I wanted to explore that and to see what that looks like, uh, because that takes on a completely different form. It's not going to be, it's not going to look like your traditional Western brawling, for example. It's not going to look like martial arts either. Uh, so I started doing my research and looking into different dance forms. There's limited, the weapons used in, in Africa. The, the challenge is, trying to incorporate some of those weapons into stage combat. So I started talking with other fight directors and trying to figure out, and, and dancers as well, in African dance, and then COVID hit. <laughs> so, yeah, so, again, so the next step is to have a workshop where we incorporate Afrofuturism principles and what that means to us as a people, and then the practicality of what well, we need to tell a story moving forward. So what we were talking about was trying to bring a couple groups of people together, fight choreographers, actor combatants, dancers, visual artists. In the recording, she had mentioned comic books. Uh, I'm in contact with Stacy Robinson. He's a prolific. Uh, he uh, created Black Kirby comic books to empower youth with, with black superheroes. So I want to work with that group of people and see where that journey takes us. Will it be a whole new technique or martial art or whatever you want to call it? I don't know. But Afrofuturism also, you need to understand, has been around for much longer. It's been around since the 30s or 40s. It just wasn't, it hasn't reached the acclaim, it didn't reach the acclaim that it has now for a lot of different reasons with technology and and just now that you know our country is the, the minority is becoming the majority as well so there's a, a whole history you know i didn't realize that you know the old bands from the 70s and 80s funkadelic and and um the commodores earth wind and fire the way they dressed that was Afro afrofuturism so it was things i didn't i wasn't even aware of and for me, the whole idea, though, of Afrofuturism is to empower African-Americans. Uh, and that's what it's about, to give them a sense of the future. And one author that, that I had read, that's what she's talking about. You know, movies from the 70s and 80s, you didn't see black people in these future movies. You know, oh, back to the future or when they go to the future, right? But the idea was, you know, I think Logan's Run, which I, I was young, I don't remember that well, but I think I remember someone talking about there was, there's no one of color. So that tells you, you don't belong in the future here. 
So with Afrofuturism, it says, yes, we do have a future and we're part of that future. And it helps with imagination and then it empowers young men and women to see themselves in the sciences and other disciplines in the STEAM, right? Or to be an artist, whatever that is. So, so that's my, my take on it. And so I'm hoping eventually, you know, once we can all get back together again to workshop these ideas and, and work with the artists and see what we can create through movement and art and see what this, what I envision, what possibly Afrofuturism using stage combat and incorporating into that, what that might look like. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well. is the essence that past iconic figures bridge between that time and now. Some examples include an actress in 1966 who was considering dropping out of her role in the popular science fiction show Star Trek. Nichelle Nichols played the part of Lieutenant Nyota Uhura, but she felt she was going nowhere in her acting career. Dr. Martin Luther King recognized the impact of her role and the racial diversity of the show and said to her, you are our image of where we are going. You are 300 years from now. For the first time, we are seen as what we should be. You don't have a black role. You have an equal role. 30 years later, a black woman reached the final frontier. Astronaut Mary Jennison in 1992 helped pilot the space shuttle Endeavour and remembers the role that Nichelle Nichols had. I discovered that musicians like Sun Ra Orchestra, born Herman Poole Blunt, the head of a jazz group, is looked to as the major musical element of Afrofuturism, but also Funkadelic or P-Funk, headed by George Clinton, and Earth, Wind & Fire, just to name a few. More recently, Raz G and his 2013 LP, Space Base is the Place and Back on the Planet, Mike Huckleby's Baseline 87, and Navadius Demon Wilburn, the rapper Future, acknowledges Sun Ra's influence and Afrofuturism. However, to my mind, I can't really experience the musical understanding in the beliefs and inner spiritualism that is the essential ingredient on appreciating the music. I don't have the same point of view to complete the picture of applying the bridge of understanding of the past and future that is a basic requirement of Afrofuturism. I realized that if I was going to have that experience, I needed to apply something more familiar to me from the days when I was younger. I could find similarity 
in Jimi Hendrix and the Hendrix Experience. Jimi was fly way before fly was commonly used in the 70s. In many ways, he was a musician that was the measure of the term a force of nature. His life was all too brief, but his legacy is unmistakable. Here was a man who was a legend, yet in an interview with Dick Cavett, he talked about having unfulfilled basic needs. How he was so tired and he felt proper sleep was essential and for him it needed to be eight hours. However, he rarely got that much sleep. In both Hendrix and Sunrod's life experiences as musicians, a discussion revealed an insight on Afrofuturism that I had not considered side by side. Both Jimmy and Sun Ra made science fiction a reoccurring theme in their music. Although they differed in how that manifested, Sun Ra wanted to bring black people to outer space, Jimmy wanted to help humans dismantle racial systems and find love. Both wanted to have music with futuristic sounds and incorporated that in their iconic songs. Hendrix, however, got the opportunity that Sun Ra never saw. He battled the gods of rock when in 1966 he blew down Cream and at that time a young Eric Clapton who was considered a musician none finer, a god of rock. This defeat happened at the height of the civil rights movement. The reports on Hendrix's dramatic guitar playing cutting deep into the cross-section of racial biases went around the world and his influence was felt throughout. I was enthralled with this musician who really had very little time on earth to play, yet his influence is unmistakable even today. Historically, anyone who understood Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing and his band as something to be experienced in a personal way would never think to stop or turn down the music because they didn't have the time to give his music a listen. They found the time to sit down and feel the power. Being a hero in your parents' eyes. I included the essence of heroism in this message because there are all kinds of heroes, personal, illustrated novels, and yes, music, all had given from one generation to the next the gift, the message, that we have a stake in how our world comes out. It's time to re-believe that we can do something that brings to the forefront our personal legacy. I wanted to ask you a more personal question now, and I guess this is about your history also, I think, mm -hmm. sort of rolled into one. Mm -hmm. Who are your heroes, and why are they your heroes? Ooh. Football heroes, anybody. Just that. talk to me. Though. Oh, no. Oh, just, um, just talk to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> by far, no, by far, my parents. Uh, not to get too deep, but uh, to put it into context, my dad's from Texas. My mom was raised by a single mom. So this is in the 50s and 60s, right? Completely different. To my, I'm the youngest of five kids. They were living in Seattle in the 60s and 70s when Seattle wasn't doing too well. And they made the choice to move out to the suburbs, a town called Bothell. We were the only black family out there. Uh, and my, my parents made the commitment to, grow, to raise us kids there. And, you know, now as I've grown as a black male, you know, I think about like my father was a manager for a, a departmental store. Uh, 
sometimes I'm, I think to myself, I wonder what he went through and how he was treated as a black man in a, I don't even say predominantly, all-white area. So truly, my father and my mother were, are my heroes uh, and the sacrifices that they made. I was an athlete, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm critical of athletes and, be, and having played Division One football where I don't, I respect them, but I don't, you know, they were gifted with a lot of talent and determination. So I respect that, but no one's my hero. It's like, uh, I was fortunate that I've been in both fields of theater and in athletics where I had a classmate and a teammate that God said, you're going to be an actor. A classmate of mine by the name of Christopher Evans Welch, who did well. He was on the rise. Unfortunately, he passed away at a young age. And then a buddy of mine who ended up playing uh, football for the Dallas Cowboys. It was the same thing when we were on the field in, in college. Everyone knew this guy's going to be a professional athlete. So my heroes are, are, are other folks. Of course, people like, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, my son, um, trying not to get too emotional. He, he, you know, he's struggling, trying to find his identity. He's 22 years old. He had made the choice in Lincoln that he was going to take a knee to illuminate the... <laughs> Are you talking about Black yeah, Lives Matter? Yeah, what he, my son decided, you know, decided, he came to me, he said, Dad, I think I'm, I'm going to take a knee because this is something that's important to me, that I want to bring recognition to, to black lives and bring that to the forefront. And then he did the same thing with Standing Rock. He said, Dad, can you drive me up? to Standing Rock, so we were in Nebraska. And I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? Because it was, it was very tense up there. And, and so there, there was a point where you could drive, but then you had to walk probably about a mile to the front lines where the police were facing off. And he was all decked out in goggles and so he wouldn't get pepper spray in his eyes. And, and luckily it, nothing happened. But as a teenager, that wasn't anything I was thinking about back then. And really all my children, my, my daughter, who's in her, like I said, second year of law school at Howard, and my older two daughters as well, they just see things different than my generation. Since I'm, I guess I'm, I could be considered a, the young, a young baby boomer, but mainly a generation Xer. Hmm. Fascinating. All right. To tie this all together, the power of Afrofuturism is both in the vision and the legacy and the art of looking to the future, especially for empowering black men and women to believe and then to go forth and do. Being a hero takes many forms, and we don't all need to be a caped crusader to take part in making changes to our world for the better. It takes courage, but then, if it is worthwhile, Having the support of friends and family makes the journey that much easier. I found my way to understanding through my God's Rock, which is a necessary ingredient in an unfamiliar landscape. I hope that you will find your way through to understanding yourself. No matter where your racial origins begin, the heritage you leave behind is unmistakable. If you have any additional thoughts to add to this fascinating topic, please send your emails to dave.mysite 
at gmail.com. This is Albuquerque Now, and now, here's an experience that is hard to give up.
This is Albuquerque Now, an extended edition covering topics of Afrofuturism with Harris Smith, Dean of UNM's College of Fine Arts, what is evidence of a hero, and what is the essence of empowerment? What message for the youth today is powerful enough to deliver with energy a desire to do better and dream bigger? George Clinton said on Afrofuturism and science fiction, free your mind and your ass will follow. He also added, open up your funkin' mind and you can fly. Afrofuturism is a recently coined label that actually refers to a movement that has roots way back in history. Harris Smith explains more in an interview I had with him. We're going to move on just a little bit. Because I know that you talk about Afrofuturism, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, I've recently researched, meaning of what that actually is. So before we go into that, I'm going to play you a little piece. It's from um, UCLA Anderson podcast show, and he's interviewing three uh, ladies. One of them is actually a professor at uh, UCLA, and I'm just going to play this little part, and then we can discuss it. Well, the audience is is worldwide, and and I I really want to jump on this point of imagination in the African diaspora, because that, to me, is what Afrofuturism is, uh, because it does also encompass fantasy, um, alternate history, sometimes it's technological, sometimes it's futuristic, but it's always Black-centered. And it's revolutionary. So it, centering blackness is in imagination is very much revolutionary today. And I think it's very important. And for that reason, it has a very wide appeal. I mean, there are Afrofuturism conferences in Germany. You know, uh, African futurism is beginning to uh, take off as a concept among African writers, uh, led by Nnedi Okorafor, who is an award-winning uh, Nigerian-American writer who distinguishes between the way I teach Afrofuturism is the Black speculative arts. And what I mean by that is the literature, music, comics, uh, films of the uh, imagination, like the not real world. So that means fantasy, imaginary places that can mean in the future, a place we haven't been to yet, or like Julie Dash's film, Daughters of the Dust, the past but interacting with the technologies of the past and trying to bridge, even in that film, which is set at basically the turn of the century, like trying to bridge between their past and the future we knew coming uh, beyond the realm of film. Okay, so we're getting a picture here of her thoughts. The three things that I picked out from that are parsed out is the fact that it's both the combination of bridging fantasy with uh, kind of a dualism of reality also about the fact that it's a journey of ideals and ideas and imagination. And then lastly, it's becoming more and more accepted worldwide. And those are the things I believe that she's been talking about when she says that she teaches this in her courses. What I wanted you to do is review that in your head a little bit and contrast that with what you're doing with it. For me, just to, to kind of put things into context, um, when I started doing my research on Afrofuturism, because I wanted this to be part of, I, I read an article and someone pointed out, for example, in Black Panther, 
um, the fighting techniques were really basically still kind of Western philosophy, right? If you look at everything that they did in Black Panther, it mirrored what came out in the movie 300. So I started to ask myself, well, what, if, if we're really looking at the, the beliefs and the ethics of black futurism and in empowering black people, what does that look like if we really distilled it down into what our beliefs and principles are applying Afrofuturism to stage violence? And so I, want, I wanted to explore that and to see what that looks like, uh, because that takes on a completely different form. It's not going to be, it's not going to look like your traditional Western brawling, for example. It's not going to look like martial arts either. Uh, so I started doing my research and looking into different dance forms. There's limited the weapons used in, in Africa. The, the challenge is trying to incorporate some of those weapons into stage combat. So I started talking with other fight directors and trying to figure out, and, and dancers as well, in African dance, and then COVID hit. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, again, so the next step is to have a workshop where we incorporate Afrofuturism principles and what that means to us as a people, and then the practicality of, well, we need to tell a story moving forward. So what we were talking about was trying to bring a couple groups of people together, fight choreographers, actor combatants, dancers, visual artists. In the recording, she had mentioned comic books. Uh, I'm in contact with Stacy Robinson. He's a prolific. Uh, he uh, created Black Kirby comic books to empower youth with, with black superheroes. So I want to work with that group of people and see where that journey takes us. Will it be a whole new technique or martial art or whatever you want to call it? I don't know. But Afrofuturism also, you need to understand, has been around for much longer. It's been around since the 30s or 40s. It just wasn't, it hasn't reached the acclaim, it didn't reach the acclaim that it has now for a lot of different reasons with technology and and just now that you know our country is the, the minority is becoming the majority as well so there's that a whole history you know i didn't realize that you know the old bands from the 70s and 80s funkadelic and and um the commodores earth wind and fire the way they dressed that was Afro afrofuturism so it was things i didn't i wasn't even aware of and for me the whole idea though of afrofuturism is to empower African-Americans, uh, and that's what it's about, to give them a sense of the future. And one author that, that I had read, that's what she's talking about, you know, movies from the 70s and 80s, you didn't see black people in these future movies, you know, oh, back to the future, or when they go to the future, right? But the idea was, you know, I think Logan's Run, which I, I was young, I don't remember that well, but I think I remember someone talking about there was, there's no one of color. So that tells you, you don't belong in the future here. So with that Afrofuturism, it says, yes, we do have a future and we're part of that future. And it helps with imagination. And then it empowers young men and women to see themselves in the sciences and other disciplines in the STEAM, right? Or to be an artist, whatever that is. So 
So that's my my take on it. And so I'm hoping eventually, you know, once we can all get back together again to workshop these ideas and, and work with the artists and see what we can create through movement and art and see what this what I envision what possibly Afrofuturism using stage combat and incorporating into that what that might look like. That's fantastic, yeah. Well, is the essence that past iconic figures bridge between that time and now. Some examples include an actress in 1966 who was considering dropping out of her role in the popular science fiction show Star Trek. Nichelle Nichols played the part of Lieutenant Nyota Uhura, but she felt she was going nowhere in her acting career. Dr. Martin Luther King recognized the impact of her role and the racial diversity of the show and said to her, You are our image of where we are going. You are 300 years from now. For the first time, we are seen as what we should be. You don't have a black role. You have an equal role. 30 years later, a black woman reached the final frontier. Astronaut Mary Jennison in 1992 helped pilot the space shuttle Endeavour and remembers the role that Nichelle Nichols had. I discovered that musicians like Sun Ra Orchestra, born Herman Poole Blunt, the head of a jazz group, is looked to as the major musical element of Afrofuturism, but also Funkadelic or P-Funk, headed by George Clinton, and Earth, Wind, and Fire, just to name a few. More recently, Raz G and his 2013 LP, Space Base is the Place and Back on the Planet, Mike Huckleby's Baseline 87, and Navadius Demon Wilburn, the rapper Future, acknowledges Sun Ra's influence and Afrofuturism. However, to my mind, I can't really experience the musical understanding in the beliefs and inner spiritualism that is the essential ingredient on appreciating the music. I don't have the same point of view to complete the picture of applying the bridge of understanding of the past and future that is a basic requirement of Afrofuturism. I realized that if I was going to have that experience, I needed to apply something more familiar to me from the days when I was younger. I could find similarity in Jimi Hendrix and the Hendrix experience. Jimi was fly, way before fly was commonly used in the 70s. In many ways, he was a musician that was the measure of the term a force of nature. His life was all too brief, but his legacy is unmistakable. 
Here was a man who was a legend, yet in an interview with Dick Cavett, he talked about having unfulfilled basic needs. How he was so tired and he felt proper sleep was essential and for him it needed to be eight hours. However, he rarely got that much sleep. In both Hendrix and Sunra's life experiences as musicians, a discussion revealed an insight on Afrofuturism that I had not considered side by side. Both Jimmy and Sun Ra made science fiction a reoccurring theme in their music. Although they differed in how that manifested, Sun Ra wanted to bring black people to outer space, Jimmy wanted to help humans dismantle racial systems and find love. Both wanted to have music with futuristic sounds and incorporated that in their iconic songs. Hendrix, however, got the opportunity that Sun Ra never saw. He battled the gods of rock when in 1966 he blew down Cream and at that time a young Eric Clapton who was considered a musician none finer, a god of rock. This defeat happened at the height of the civil rights movement. The reports on Hendrix's dramatic guitar playing cutting deep into the cross-section of racial biases went around the world and his influence was felt throughout. I was enthralled with this musician who really had very little time on earth to play, yet his influence is unmistakable even today. Historically, anyone who understood Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing and his band as something to be experienced in a personal way would never think to stop or turn down the music because they didn't have the time to give his music a listen. They found the time to sit down and feel the power. Being a hero in your parents' eyes. I included the essence of heroism in this message because there are all kinds of heroes, personal, illustrated novels, and yes, music, all had given from one generation to the next the gift, the message that we have a stake in how our world comes out. It's time to re-believe that we can do something that brings to the forefront our personal legacy. I wanted to ask you a more personal question now, and I guess this is about your history also, I think, mm -hmm. sort of rolled into one. Mm -hmm. Who are your heroes, and why are they your heroes? Ooh. Football heroes, anybody. Just that. talk to me. Then. Oh, no. Oh, just, um, just talk to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> by far, no, by far, my parents. Uh, not to get too deep, but uh, to put it into context, my dad's from Texas. My mom was raised by a single mom. So this is in the 50s and 60s, right? Completely different. To my, I'm the youngest of five kids. They were living in Seattle in the 60s and 70s when Seattle wasn't doing too well. And they made the choice to move out to the suburbs, a town called Bothell. We were the only black family out there. Uh, and my, my parents made the commitment to, grow, to raise us kids there. And, you know, now as I've grown as a black male, you know, I think about like my father was a manager for a, a departmental store. Um, sometimes I'm, I think to myself, I wonder what he went through and how he was treated as a black man in a, I don't even say predominantly, all-white area. So truly, my father and my mother were, are my heroes uh, and the sacrifices 
that they made. I was an athlete, so I'm kind of I'm, I'm critical of athletes and be and having played Division One football, where I don't I respect them, but I don't you know they were gifted with a lot of talent and determination. So I respect that, but no one's my hero. It's like uh, I was fortunate that I've been in both fields of theater and in athletics where I had a classmate and a teammate that God said, you're going to be an actor. A classmate of mine by the name of Christopher Evans Welch, who did well. He was on the rise. Unfortunately, he passed away at a young age. And then a buddy of mine who ended up playing uh, football for the Dallas Cowboys. It was the same thing when we were on the field in, in college. Everyone knew this guy's going to be a professional athlete. So my heroes are, are, are other folks. Of course, people like, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, my son, um, trying not to get too emotional. He, he, you know, he's struggling trying to find his identity. He's 22 years old. He had made the choice in Lincoln that he was going to take a knee to illuminate the... <laughs> Are you talking about Black yeah, Lives Matter? Yeah, he, my son decided, you know, decided, he came to me, he said, Dad, I think I'm, I'm going to take a knee because this is something that's important to me, that I want to bring recognition to, to black lives and bring that to the forefront. And then he did the same thing with Standing Rock. He said, Dad, can you drive me up? to Standing Rock, so we were in Nebraska. And I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? Because it was it was very tense up there. And and so there there was a point where you could drive, but then you had to walk probably about a mile to the front lines where the police were facing off. And he was all decked down in goggles and so he wouldn't get pepper spray in his eyes. And, and luckily it, nothing happened. But as a teenager, that wasn't anything I was thinking about back then. And really all my children, my, my daughter, who's in her, like I said, second year of law school at Howard, and my older two daughters as well, they just see things different than my generation. Since I'm, I guess I'm, I could be considered a, the young, a young baby boomer, but mainly a generation Xer. Hmm. Fascinating. All right. To tie this all together, the power of Afrofuturism is both in the vision and the legacy and the art of looking to the future, especially for empowering black men and women to believe and then to go forth and do. Being a hero takes many forms, and we don't all need to be a caped crusader to take part in making changes to our world for the better. It takes courage, but then, if it is worthwhile, Having the support of friends and family makes the journey that much easier. I found my way to understanding through my God's Rock, which is a necessary ingredient in an unfamiliar landscape. I hope that you will find your way through to understanding yourself. No matter where your racial origins begin, the heritage you leave behind is unmistakable. If you have any additional thoughts to add to this fascinating topic, please send your emails to dave.mysite at gmail.com. This is Albuquerque Now, and now, here is an experience that is hard to give up. (laughs) 